get our own uh, meeting now under underway. Just to give a, a very brief overview, we'll have the oral evidence session with departmental officials on attacking paramilitary activity, the criminal and organised crime uh, programme phase two, further information relating to the protection from the stalking bill, research paper on online trawling uh, and abuse, an update on the Justice, Sexual Offences and Trafficking Victims Bill, a statutory rule to amend the proceeds of crime, uh, a proposed statutory rule uh, on the making available of the market and supervision and transfer of explosives, a proposed statutory rule to amend Rule 22A of the Parole Commissioner's Amendment Rule in Northern Ireland 2021, and written papers on the outcomes of the June monitoring round, and further information on the financial position, progress to delivery of the support services for the prison staff, and a proposed consultation on the court approval for minor settlements. The Committee Forward Work Programme for September uh, 2021. Uh, just to remind members that the use of mobile devices as long as they are in airplane mode and all devices are muted. This includes the members' tablets and the members can connect via the Assembly Wi-Fi. Remind members that they are obliged to declare any financial or other relevant interests which might reasonably be thought by others to influence their approach to the matters under consideration. Any members who have interest to declare in relation to today's business should do so now or when the particular matter arises uh, during the meeting. If there's no de declarations of interest, can then I seek the agreement of members for the oral evidence session to be reported by Hansard? Agreed? Agreed. Thank you. Agenda, the item one, apologies. We have an apology from uh, Emma Rogan, and uh, just to advise that Linda Dillon, uh, Sinead Bradley, Doug, Rachel, Robin, Gemma, are all joining us by Starleaf, and I welcome you all to the committee. And again, please indicate by waving, putting your hand up, shouting, whatever it is you need to get my attention, because I'm trying to contain Peter Weir in the room, uh, which is a challenge on its own. So uh, I just need to make sure that I keep an eye on, on the screen. Also, advise members that if uh, they've indicated anyone who has a delegated authority to vote on their behalf is provided by Standing Order 16, and Emma has delegated her vote to the Deputy Chair, uh, Linda. Item 2, the draft minutes of the meeting held on the 24th of June 2021, pages 5 to 16 of the meeting pack, and our members contend that the minutes are a true reflection of the proceedings of the minute held on that date. Agreed? Agreed. Thank you, and I will uh, sign accordingly. <coughs> Item three, matters arising. Item one, correspondence from the First and Deputy First Minister on the Justice, Sex Offences and Trafficking and Victims Bill. And you'll find that information at pages 18 to 20 of the meeting pack for uh, your information. First Minister and Deputy First Minister have replied to the committee's letter asking the Executive to review the Justice Bill with the aim of approving its introduction to the Assembly. Members will be aware that a revised bill titled the Justice, Sex Offences and Trafficking Bill has agree was agreed by the Executive for introduction at its meeting on last Thursday, and this will be considered later in the meeting under uh, agenda item 7. So if you just bear with us until we get to that, because there is some uh, additional information that we want to convey at that stage. Item 2 is correspondence from the Secretary of State on the Troubles Permanent uh, Disablement Payment Scheme. 
and you'll find that information at pages 21 to 26. The Secretary of State for Northern Ireland has responded eventually uh, to the committee's letter regarding the provision for the funding for the Troubles Permanent Disablement Pension Scheme. And the Secretary of State has indicated that uh, it is clear is the clear position of the UK government that the scheme is a devolved matter to be funded by the executive and he's outlined the offer to the executive in relation to access to NDNA funds to help manage the cost of the scheme for the financial years 2022 to, uh, to 23, 2025 to 26. Now obviously members you'll be aware that there's been considerable concern and noise uh, and, and uh, dismay uh, around some elements of this scheme, particularly in relation to uh, the use of capita. And, and I do think that it would be good for uh, this committee to uh, write to the Minister to seek uh, information on a paper, particularly in relation to the process that was used whereby uh, capita was appointed and the procurement route, because members, you'll not be surprised even from the days that I was the finance minister, I've had a long con uh, continued concern about the procurement processes that uh, government departments use and the way in which some of that is operated. And, and I have to say, uh, no less concern when I listen to some of the issues that have been raised in the incoming week. So if members were content, we would write to the minister uh, seeking that paper in regards to this procurement process, because clearly there are a lot of questions that still need to be answered. I'm sure some other members. Linda, can you only comment? Thank you, Chair. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not opposed to us to doing that. I'm wondering if we should wait until we meet with the victims groups in case they have other issues that they want to raise yes. that we include. But, but yep. if you think we can go ahead and send this now and then just raise the other issues after we do the meeting, no, no problem with that. Just in relation to the um, to the issue around the response from the Secretary of State, two things, as you said yourself, eventually. Three months we've been waiting on this response, even though months ago this was put out into the public domain. So it's nothing new, and I frankly think it's insulting to the to the victims and to the to us as an assembly, us as as and the executive. But um, not surprising, to be honest with you, given the the attitude that the current Secretary of State has taken to the assembly. But just um. To raise that I, I do think I just want to put it on the record that I do think that waiting three months on a response that was out in the public domain months ago is is highly offensive. Yeah. I think treats this committee with disdain. And just the last point is, you know, what he's talked about in terms of, you know, offering to, to allow us to take money out of NDNA monies again, highly insulting. He's well aware that under their own rules, if you create uh, if you have legislative responsibility and you create the policy, then you finance it. And for whatever reason, they've decided not to do that. But I just wanted on the record that I still believe that the executive need to be taking this this fight to the the British government and Secretary of State. But to clarify around that, that is a battle for the executive and the assembly to have with the British government and the Secretary of State, and should be no hindrance to the victims receiving their payments. 
and, and nothing should hinder that. So ju I just want to clarify that while I st still think we have an ongoing battle with the, with the British government and the Secretary of State, that should not be any blockage to payments being made to victims that waited long enough and far too long. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Linda. And I think that point, I think we should write uh, now in relation to the point about the procurement and then follow up because just so that members, uh, not to cut across anybody who may any other comment, but just uh, there has been a meeting arranged for uh, the Wednesday, the 7th of July at 3.45 with the victims' representatives group. And, and I think that that will probably raise a number of other issues and concerns. And then subject, subsequent to that, we will again raise those issues on their behalf with, with the department. So, and should we send the Secretary of State's letter uh, to the First and Deputy First Minister? They may have already seen a copy of it, just in case they haven't. I think we should send it there. Seems yep. sensible enough. Yep, agreed. Okay, Rachel. Sorry, Chair, thank you. You've already answered my questions there in terms of uh, the meet, uh, a meeting with the victims. Group. So I, was, I wasn't aware about that on um, Wednesday. Apologies, I might have missed that. And also just to send that on to the executive. Okay. Um, I think it's just in terms of the access to this this legacy funding um, and the new decade, new approach funding there, um, I think that has had to be agreed by executive then. Um, and 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 if it, if it has, when was that agreed um, to? And I'm aware that certainly ministers were meeting with the Secretary of State, and I wonder if there's been any any further meetings uh, between the Minister of Finance, Ministers of Justice, and uh, the First and Deputy First Minister with uh, the Secretary of State in relation to this funding. Well, what we can do, Rachel, is uh, addendum put that as an addition to the uh, the, the cover letter including the letter from the Secretary of State and seek that clarification from the Executive Office. Okay. Thank you, Chair. Uh, in relation to the, the, the meeting, so just to rehearse to members that that meeting is confirmed for Wednesday the 7th at 3.30, uh, 3.45, and the Microsoft Teams information will be sent to members as soon as possible so that you can uh, plan to be in attendance at that particular meeting. Okay. Item 3, further information requested by the Committee on the consultation of the review of non-fatal uh, strangulation leg legislation. We had requested further information from the Department uh, on the review uh, at our meeting uh, last week. And the Department has confirmed to the Turk that in developing the public consultation, the review team worked with an expert reference group who provided valuable assistance and guidance. The draft consultation document was shared with the group and the comments received fed into the final version of the document. The consultation is due to run from the end of June for an extended period of 10 weeks to take account of the summer holiday period. Uh, any questions in relation to that? I think Linda has asked for a clarification that was already covered uh, in the, the briefing, but Linda, are you, are you content? Okay, thank you. Item four, the tackling uh, paramilitary activity, criminality, organised crime programme phase two. The department officials will join this meeting via Starleaf to brief the committee on phase two of the tackling paramilitary activity, criminality and organised crime programme. 
which will cover the period of 2021 to 2024. And the relevant papers uh, in relation to this are pages 29 to 156 of today's uh, meeting pack. And can I welcome to the meeting Adele Brown, uh, Programme direct Director, uh, Christopher Farrington and Sinead Simpson, all from the Tackling Paramilitary Activity, Criminality and Organised Crime Programme team, and advise them that the session uh, will be rep uh, reported by Hansard and the transcript will be published on the committee uh, webpage. And can I invite uh, Adele to provide uh, a, a brief update to the members and then we will have questions. You're, you're very welcome and uh, we'll ask you to make your presentation. Thank you. Thank you very much, Chairman, and thank you very much for, for having us. We're very pleased to be, be with you, albeit virtually. Um, we've done the introductions already, so I'll, I'll not go over that again. It, it might be useful just if I start by updating you on the funding position for the programme, because it was unclear when we last spoke to you in November what exactly that would be. In February, we secured £13 million for this year from the Executive and the UK Government. And in addition, there will be £10 million provided over three years, which will be ring-fenced for community-based activity, which will be delivered through um, our Communities in Transition project. Now, that's great news to get that funding confirmation, and it's allowed us to start work on phase two. Um, although for the vast majority of projects that we support, there's no guarantee of funding beyond March of next year. So like others in the public sector, we will need to start this process again in the autumn and submit a further bid for continued funding for the remainder of the programme out to 2024. It's maybe also useful if I reflect a little on the programme's uh, progress date, given that in March we reached the end of phase one. The programme, as you are well aware, is dealing with a, a vast, complex, intergenerational problem, and its root causes are much broader um, than the scope of the programme itself, which presents a significant challenge to us in terms of the direct levers that, that we can access. Uh, we also, in the programme, had a, a very challenging starting point. I think it's fair to say that six years ago, the idea of tackling paramilitarism was not in any sense embedded. It just wasn't a public policy priority. And there was reluctance in many cases to engage with the issue, whether that was individually, departmentally, or at a societal level. And we haven't talked in many cases um, about the so-called societal shrug when it comes to paramilitarism. There was some work underway, but um, in many cases it was siloed or, or driven by uh, courageous individuals and not necessarily organisations. And in many cases it was underfunded or in some cases overlooked. And in many other situations, people just didn't want to deal with the issue. There were no baselines for measuring progress, no agreed definition of what paramilitarism actually involved. And there was very little shared understanding of intervention, interventions and certainly very few that could be scaled up even where they were successful. There was also limited collaboration between departments and crucially no agreed sense of what worked. So it was against this backdrop that the 38 recommendations agreed by the executive were to be implemented from a standing start, it's probably important to say, with no real time for programme design. And in some communities where there was very little trust in statutory bodies. The absence of the assembly and executive also meant that delays to legislation and policy were inevitable. 
and all these factors have conditioned the speed and the scope of progress under the programme. We are often asked what progress has been made and it is, in our view, absolutely the right question to ask. When we reviewed the programme this time last year, we were able to show many of the original action plan commitments have been addressed. 16 have been implemented, 13 were well underway, 6 were in development and a smaller number, 3, had been delayed due to the absence of the executive. But that doesn't really give a true sense of progress and it's perhaps more helpful to think how far we have come in terms of the context I've just outlined. Five years on from the start of the programme, we now have much better data. We have robust evidence and examples of what works. The programme is starting to embed a public health approach to violence reduction and routinely engages with over 50 public, voluntary and community sector partners. Collaboration has genuinely become more than just a buzzword and we have a much broader set of identified measurements for success. And crucially, we have four years of learning from interventions, all of which means that we can ensure projects are based on assessed need and increasingly trauma-informed, which is really important. Those individual projects will, from April this year, be working for the first time together on shared interim and end objectives with shared measurements of progress. And that may sound slightly conceptual and abstract, but it means we will be able to measure and describe impact more easily. And this matters because if we want these outcomes to have longevity beyond the lifetime of the programme, we really need to create and embed the structures that allow this to happen that show the connections between this work, broader COVID recovery and programme for government goals. <laughs> of course, if you've been given an appointment by paramilitaries to be shot or had your benefits taken by money lenders or forced into drug dealing or prostitution by them or are trying to find a way out from a paramilitary gang, systems change isn't going to feel remotely relevant or helpful. If you're a frontline worker trying to support a traumatised young person who's under threat, you understandably want that change to happen now. It can't come soon enough. And we never lose sight of that reality. Um, and I know that we would all like to be doing more um, and doing it more quickly. All of that is why from April and the start of phase two of the programme, we're using learning from phase one to refocus and redouble our efforts and investment. We have streamlined the programme from four into two key work streams. The first is about keeping people safe from harm in the here and now. And the second is about intervening to break that intergenerational cycle of violence and create more resilient um, communities and individuals. The systems change, the connecting people in work that I spoke about earlier supports that. Um, but it's clear that we'll need to keep innovating across the board to deal with new problems and issues as they arise. So, in short, there, there has been good progress. A lot of it isn't visible, but there's still an awful lot more to do. I hope that gives you a very quick overview and a sense of, of where we are at the moment. Um, but we're, of course, happy to, to talk in more detail about the programme or <coughs> the written documentation that we've provided previously. Thank you, Chairman. Thank you very much, Adele. Obviously, there's, I think what you said there in terms of a lot of this may be going on and people don't... Uh, actually see uh, it in a very tangible way or that they can they can place their hand on it uh, other than I suppose the work of the the, the crime task force and and the work that uh, the police does in terms of of uh, part of this but if you look at some of the programs for example 
the the communities in transition. How, if we were to take Northern Ireland uh, in a geographical uh, context, and on that map we would place the areas that we know from activity of paramilitaries of uh, various uh, from various organisations, both loyalist and republican, we would indicate them on that map. But there are sometimes. None of them have been touched by any of the work that is in, in one of those programmes, Communities in Transition. And, and how do we then ensure that we are tackling, not, and, and this is, it's a trait comment in a sense, but the low-hanging fruit, as opposed to really trying to deal and to make progress in areas where there are real, uh, real problems, ingrained problems in communities? And how do we break that cycle if some of them haven't even been touched yet by programmes that are rolling out from this particular approach? So I think they're all, they're all questions that we're trying to wrestle with all the time. The, the eight areas that Communities in Transition um, focus on are ones which were determined after um, research was, which was undertaken a number of years ago, and there are areas where we know there is a there has been and continues to be a high prevalence of, of paramilitary activity taking lots of different forms. But what I would say is that the totality of the the program is much wider than that, and, and we have interventions taking place um, right the way across Northern Ireland. So I wouldn't want to, to convey the impression that that's the only the only area that, that we're working or the only areas that we're working in. One of the, the big learning points that we took from phase one of the project, which was included in the review that was, was published um, last July, was the need to work and the need to develop our locality-based working. Um, Sinead is, is with me here today and is, is leading on that work. And, and that's very much about um, adopting that approach in different areas and trying to understand what the need is. And exactly as you're saying, um, not just dealing with problems which are entrenched and which have been there for some time, but trying to get ahead of them and trying to think about what preventative action we can take to avoid paramilitarism um, getting a grip. But I'll maybe ask Sinead if, if, if that's OK, Chair, just to yes. come in and talk a little bit about the principles <coughs> behind locality working. Yes, uh, Chair, as, as Adele says, um, locality working is, is part of the enabling framework for the, the, the programme. It's um, it's based on the, the principles of place-based working, which have been shown to um, have been effective in terms of addressing harm and vulnerability in, um, through research that has been done nationally and internationally. So, um, as Adele says, it, it's one part of the it's part of the enabling framework, and there are many other parts um, that that focus on localities. Um, for us, it's 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 very much about. Um, uh, collaborative problem-solving approaches, where, which we're piloting in three areas. Um, but it's important to say that, as well as working with um, and understanding the issues in those areas and working with the partners and the existing service delivery mechanisms that exist there, it's also in large part about understanding what works in those ecosystems. What, what is it that, that works? What are, um, what are the gaps? Uh, and taking that learning out from those localities and feeding it into the wider uh, programme and indeed into the, the wider system of, of government. 
Um, so it's, it's, as I say, it's very much about that, that collaborative working with partners in those areas. Um, we, we very much recognise that um, the harm and vulnerability issues that, that we're coming across in communities are the, the, the exact same issues um, that, that can give rise to vulnerability to paramilitary influence. So as it else says, we want to get in early, we want to get ahead of those issues and, and see what we can do by building a bit of community resilience within those localities. I, I, I would add, if I might chair, that um, a lot of that work is very much intended to be proactive, as, as Sinead has described, but we are very conscious that in many cases communities um, have fed back to us that they feel that statutory agencies aren't perhaps as joined up as they could be, yeah. um, both in that proactive sense but also reactively. So um, while Sinead is engaged in some of the proactive work in terms of legal locality, we are also trying to get our house in order um, a, a bit better in terms of the statutory response to um, responding to particular events which, which might arise. And, and that is done primarily through um, community safety board structures which have been developed and which have been tested um, this year in particular. So I think that there's two elements to this. There's the proactive locality work that, that we're seeking to do through the programme. And then there's the reactive work as well, which helps us understand a little bit um, better in real time, the sorts of issues that, that communities are facing, um, but make sure that we have a, a much better shared understanding amongst statutory bodies about how we can respond and how we can be helpful. That, that should happen um, as a matter of course, but as ever, um, departmental boundaries mean that, that perhaps that, that needs to be improved and, that, and that's something that we're, we're very much focused on and, and very much committed to, to continuing to improve. One of the elements of this was the Mid-East uh, Mid Antrim Support Hub. And if, if you were asked for an assessment of that, how, how would you describe, given part of the locale that Mid and East Antrim covers and the, the challenges that they have had in some uh, elements of, of that uh, council area in dealing with the uh, problem of paramilitary activity, how would you say that has been delivered and what would you say has been the positive outcomes and is it a model that could be then rolled out and used in other locations? So that particular pilot, which is, is still very much in the early stages, and I'll ask Christopher to say a little bit more about the detail about it because he's been involved in this, was very much a response to feedback that we had that the, the sort of multi-agency response um, had to be improved or, or certainly could be tested to see if it could be improved. So, so that is a pilot project which is, is relatively new um, and will be subject to evaluation, but I'll bring Christopher in, if that's okay, just to talk in a bit more detail about what we're seeking to do there. Thank you. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, the, that project sits within a kind of a, a three-stranded approach to how we're supporting uh, young people under the programme, so that there's a, a, a range of direct service provision um, which is um, through things like the, uh, the youth work and the youth outreach project we've got through the Aspire project and so forth. Um, the the Mid-East Antrim Support Hub project sits in the multi-agency work, which as Adele said, was um, we did some proper kind of development work with, with partners around where the gaps in provision might be. Uh, multi-agency work was certainly something that came out as, um, as, a, as a key priority. And we've looked at what kind of models might be appropriate to use and what might be scalable in the long term. So we actually have two projects that are going on under that stream. One is with Belfast City Council, which is supporting people who are directly under threat. 
Um, uh, and they have a, a project going on to try and, in West Belfast to try and support people who um, are, are come under threat. And that's a multi-agency project that includes the police and the housing executive. The Midneath Antrim one is a, is a different one. It's a little bit on the earlier intervention side to try and use the support hub model, which is working with people who have vulnerabilities um, to wrap around, do problem solve on a multi-agency level uh, uh, and try and um, support and help those particular young people. Um, we think, um, subject to how that pilot works, we've asked that pilot to do a couple of things. One is to work out what particular needs there are out there and whether there is a gap in service provision that, that we need to kind of talk about on a wider level. Um, but secondly, that is that support hub model the model that could be used for this? So um, that certainly is a question that we want that pilot to answer for us. Um, our hunch is, is that it might be scalable because the, the infrastructure is there across other council areas. Um, but ultimately, that, that question can only be answered once we the that particular pilot has worked through a number of cases, has assessed kind of what those type of cases are, and whether that kind of multi-agency wraparound support is actually the thing that, that that's needed in, in those instances. So certainly, that is um, those are all the questions that that pilot has been set up to to, to ask for us. But clearly, we saw sadly over the last number. Uh, of weeks, uh, the worst rioting uh, that we have had, some would say, since 2005. And elements of that were clearly uh, young people. And one of the comments was made around uh, the lack of response. While there was some response, but the lack of response of youth services to be able to go in, and I know there was a response from uh, the, the Department of Education to help to address some of that. But why was it left, in a sense, to almost, it would seem, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it was almost left to one department to be proactive, uh, as opposed to there being a collaborative approach and ensure that everything was done that could be done to try and desist and help other young people being caught up in what was a very difficult uh, period of time uh, for those communities that suffered as a result of, of that violence a few uh, months ago or a few weeks ago. So I, I think we would, we would share your concern around about the vulnerability of young people and, and the extent to which they, they become more, more vulnerable when they get involved in these situations. I would be really interested in hearing a bit more detail about um, where, where those concerns are emanating from because actually our, our experience was um, slightly different and we were acutely aware that um, Education Authority and, and Youth Services in particular scaled up their response um, in various areas to make sure that they had provision to intervene. And our experience certainly, and I mentioned um, the Community Safety Board structures a, a moment ago, was that that genuinely was a collaborative effort with, with information being shared in real time between different agencies based on different localities so that um, they could all understand, one, what the situation was, two, where the vulnerability might lie, and three, what sort of response could be initiated and where everybody could play a different role in that. We certainly felt from, from our side of things that that was something that probably hadn't, hadn't happened on that scale before in terms of uh, the cooperation and collaboration between different agencies, but 
as I say, if, if there are specific incidences where, where that's not been felt, um, we would certainly be very happy to, to look into it um, and make sure that that's addressed. Okay, thank you. Peter? Yeah, a couple of points I found out. It's all very interesting. Um, can I ask, obviously, you're doing the, the three pilots you've, you've mentioned, which I think would be very useful, and part of the stuff is to see what can be rolled forward. But I suppose I'd be interested to hear your views on what um, level of cognizance is able to be given also to perhaps differential approaches. And what I mean by that is, uh, as with any pilots, if you're doing a, a number of them, um, and I suppose as we're, we're talking about sometimes, well, there are similarities of behaviour in terms of paramilitary activity, in terms of control, etc. But I suppose the argument is what works in, um, for the sake of argument, North Tyrone may not necessarily work the same way in North Armagh or North Belfast in that regard. So I wonder to what extent in terms of the pilot you're, you're trying to build in a level of um, also looking at, at, at what are the, the uh, applicable sort of differential circumstances that will be within different areas to roll forward uh, as opposed to simply just looking at the, the commonality. Maybe if it's okay, if, if we can draw on, on the two different pilots, because they are set up yeah. slightly differently, and actually they're intended to do just that, is to test whether um, they, they work differently in different areas, and, and so we can compare and trust some of the, the information coming out of that. But, Christopher, maybe with the, the West Belfast pilot and also Magnus Stanton, because they are set up and, and structurally quite different in terms of, of the people involved in delivering them. Yeah, so so the, the West Belfast pilot is, is a... Is a, a structurally is a, is a uh, multi-agency uh, network between the Housing Executive, Belfast City Council, um, and uh, uh, the, the police, and then it's beginning, beginning to pull in some other partner agencies as well, including the Health and Social Care Board. But ultimately, it's trying to meet a, a particular need in, in West Belfast that, that has been identified around how you support people who are under, under threat, and it's using a, a very particular service delivery model working with community partners um, and making sure that the information flows to address um, needs and, and threats and, and either immediately or, or trying to do a little bit more preventative work where they're aware of issues. So that model has developed over time um, and they have kind of shifted because the initial kind of multi-agency setup that they had didn't quite do what they needed to do. So that they have shifted over time in order to try and work out what the need is that they're meeting and how is the best way to do that in that particular area. Um, in Mid-East Antrim, um, you'll, you'll be aware it's a different kind of environment. The, the multi-agency structures there are a little bit more developed because of the support hub model that's been in existence for a number of years and it's one of the more advanced models in that sense. So those relationships were already there and they've been looking closely at how they learn from the West Belfast water around how they use community-based um, information and community-based partnerships and have been working closely with the education authority projects in the in the area as well. Um, and they've identified a slightly different way that they need to work and they need to support the young people in the area. So ultimately that's what we're trying to pull through and through the, the structures that we're setting up underneath the programme to try and share learning and, and, um, and discussion and, and try to share objectives. What we hope to happen is that we'll Get a better sense as to what the what those differences are um, and how we then build that into kind of more wider service provision going going forward so um kind of the answer to the question is you were absolutely interested in how that works and we're really really conscious of 
the, the local, either, you know, whether it's the local cultures and the local um, infrastructure, or whether it's the local relationships between our organizations or between statutes and communities, and working and building from there and sharing and learning across, uh, across those projects. One of the things that we've also um, working on through the program is um, trying to find a common um, framework for problem solving. So acknowledging that different areas have different needs, different, as Christopher said, different infrastructure, different different ways of approaching things. Um, we, we have been looking at a problem solving model, which we refer to as common purpose, which um, developed um, out of multi-agency working in, in Derry, London Derry. Um, between primarily Education Authority and PSNI, but also involving other statutory agencies and in the community and voluntary sector. And actually, that's something that we, we possibly might want to, if it's helpful, we could share with you, um, because it provides a, an evidence base and a, and a structure, um, again, to make sure that although we're adopting different approaches in different areas, we're able to take the common learning from that. Um, and then again, deploy that and apply that in, in different areas. So we'd be very happy to share that with you if it's if it's of interest to you. Okay, I think that would be useful. The other point is was following on from a, a, an area that the, the, the chair probed. Um, reading through all the arrangements you have in place, I was very impressed by the extent of the of the level of monitoring that was going on and the structures you put in place for monitoring. But I suppose that there's a, a also a fairly fundamental question. Um, which, which is, particularly as a lot of this um, will tend to be qualitative rather than quantitative in its, in its nature, um, is the extent to which there's a level of evaluation of um, are these the right things that we are monitoring? I'm conscious of the fact that, that there is always going to be a danger in some of these things, that you monitor a range of things and on the basis of the responses in those monitoring bits, it all seems to be moving very positively. And then you look at the wider picture and find that there isn't a, um, a level of, of change. Uh, and I suppose it, it, that comes down to, in part, um, a, a degree of, of reassurance that the right things are being monitored. I, I'm reminded, I think, of the, uh, the true story, I think, during the Vietnam War in the late 1960s, where, uh, I suppose, in the kind of, I wouldn't say pre-computer days, but the days whenever it was all probably index cards, etc. apparently there was a weekend at the Pentagon where they, they fed in every possible piece of information, every statistic, every monitoring arrangement they had, with the idea being of, you know, when would, when would the Americans win the war? And all the systems spent the entire weekend processing this. And in the end, they got sort of one card which said, you won it a year ago, uh, which quite clearly was not, was not the case on it. So I'm just wondering from the point of view of, of how do we ensure that whatever monitoring is going on is monitoring the right things and producing, therefore, the right results so that we're getting the correct interventions in terms of um, tackling paramilitarism? I think you've hit on a real challenge um, for, for not just this programme, but for other similar programmes in, in different jurisdictions who, who have faced this problem. And it's something that when we did our review this time last year, came out as, as something that we needed to develop in phase two of the programme. And we've, mm. we've been very focused on that. And um, I'll ask Christopher again in a moment to, to run through um, our benefits realisation approach and some of the, the interim and end benefits that, that we're keen to focus on and, and you, you can perhaps test us around about that but what, what I would say is um, it, it's quite a challenging um, issue to approach and to get right as, as you've identified. We started off as I said earlier with this programme not having any baseline data and we've had to develop that and there are gaps in that data as well which we've had to try and rectify it, 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 because of the nature of the problem that we're dealing with. 
um, these are not necessarily being reported or they're being reported in different areas, perhaps in health or um, through other disciplines, education, which we might not immediately have sight of. So we're trying to pull together all that data and we certainly got quite far in doing that through phase one. Um, but we were very conscious that we had lots of different individual projects which were doing really good work, but actually in total were we all pulling in the same direction and, and how were we measuring that impact. So what we've done in phase two is, is move to what we call a benefits realisation approach, which is um, really about agreeing the change that, that we want to see and then making sure that we have the projects in place to actually support that change and being very critical, self-critical about how we measure that and making sure that um, yes, we might need to have qualitative assessment, but we're able, wherever possible, to draw on data as well. Um, so, so we have been implementing that. Um, it's at the early stages, and we certainly can point at the moment to, to tactical um, level sort of improvements, but we do still have a bit of a challenge around about population level data. So all of these things are things that we're trying to work through at the moment, um, as I say, with this, this new process. Uh, but fundamentally, it will mean all the individual projects, instead of working individually, will be working collectively to the, the same shared benefits. And, and that puts us in a very different position for actually measuring whether they are all contributing to the, the end benefits or the end outcomes that, that we want to see. Christopher, do you want to add to that more specifically on some of the yeah, so end benefits? So, so some of this is kind of slightly dry program management terminology, so I'll, I'll try and keep that to a minimum. Um, and we're more than happy to, to provide some, some more detail if, if, if you require it. But ultimately what, what we have is a number of kind of end program benefits that we've identified, which are high level things that should change at a population level if, if we are doing the right things. And we've put in place uh, for almost all of them, we have in place systems in order to, to, to monitor those. And those are then linked quite clearly with what individual projects are, 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 um, are delivering. But those projects then sit within a number of groups. And so there's kind of clusters of outcomes that we want to see those groups delivering. I'll run through them really, really quickly. So we have a group around keeping people safe, which to try and address the harm in the here and now. They are you know, the projects that sit under that group are, are supposed to be uh, looking at how they improve things like, you know, reducing paramilitary intimidations, making sure victims receive effective help, and um, reduction in kind of some of the security and some of the intimidation um, uh, statistics like paramilitary cell attacks, um, and increasing the number of seizures and arrests and so forth. The second group is around kind of attitudinal changes, and, and th that group has been tasked with looking at how we improve relationships between PSI and communities and about how issues within the paramilitarism are, are discussed and addressed. And that'll feed through in some kind of in some of the life and time survey that we've commissioned around um, what people feel is happening within their communities. The third group is around increasing protective factors um, of, of people who are vulnerable, and that's looking at, you know, we've got a kind of a broad category around increased protective factors, but that's around, you know, uh, mental health issues, um, whether people have employment, educational um, attain attainment and, and so forth. Um, but they're also looking at how we increase the efficacy of frontline workers to deal and address and work with some of these people. And then the final group is around community resilience. So the, well, the protective factors one is very much focused on individuals, the community resilience one is looking at how we um, improve the resilience of communities that are vulnerable to paramilitarism. Um, and you know, 
projects in that are, are kind of like the communities and transition projects, the big one, but also kind of again getting people to work together, Department for Communities and the PSNI also in that. So those are it's a very quick run through the types of things we're, we're measuring, but the purpose of the groups is to tie that together, get people working together on those. And as we're going through and implementing, are we actually seeing any changes in any of these measures? Are we doing the right things? Uh, and are we then kind of reviewing and, and processing on a, on a regular basis to make sure that we've got the right things in place? So the system, we're, we're setting that up now as we're moving from a kind of delivery of the, the 38 bits of the action plan to uh, a program designed and around delivery of benefits and, and outcomes. Okay, thank you. And it's a model that, that has, sorry, I just can say it's a model that's been extensively tested in, in other jurisdictions as well. So we have the assurance that, that there are people who have gone before us who have used this model and, and they've been able to describe exactly those benefits and, and, and provide that assurance um, that actually the, the investment that we're making is, is in the right areas and is, is contributing towards those, those end goals. So that provides a bit of additional reassurance in, in that respect in the early days, at least until we get our own groups up and running. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Uh, Linda. Thank you, Chair, and thank you for the presentation. Much appreciated. Um, I suppose at the outset, I would just like to make a, a short comment in terms of injecting honesty into the conversation, because when we talk about what, what happened a few months ago and that engagement with young people through youth services, and I think there was a prompt response to, to be fair to youth services and be fair, to be fair particularly to those people from youth services who were working on the ground. They had a real challenge in that in, in one area you had the adults in the community out supporting youth services, trying to take the young people off the streets, actually removing stuff off the streets as they were trying to burn it and trying to talk those young people down and calm them down. And on the other side of the fence, you had adults actually cheering them down the road and encouraging them down the road. And I, I, I believe that, that that is the, the truth and honesty, you know, honesty assessment of what happened and so the engagement for youth services with those young people is much more challenging because if you don't have the support of the adults and the leaders in the community so I, I count myself and, and all elected reps as part of that leadership and we have a responsibility and we have a responsibility to stand with those youth workers and those people in those circumstances, those very difficult circumstances to, to show that we're given leadership and we're prepared to support them because nobody can do this on their own and we can talk about all the statutory agencies and you know all of the community workers and organisations but we are leaders in our community and we have a responsibility to lead. So I, I do think that it was important for leaders within communities to be on the street and showing that leadership and supporting the youth workers that were there on the street doing a very difficult job in very difficult circumstances and the follow-up work that they've done since. I do think probably a, a wee bit more engagement in, in terms of trying to get those young people potentially out of the areas, you know, whether that's residentials. And I know we're in very difficult circumstance because of COVID and even more so at that particular time. But going forward, if there was something that can be very quickly put in place around the likes of residentials, because I do think that they're probably would be parents out there who know that their young people, their kids are at, at a real risk of maybe potentially becoming involved in this kind of activity 
but are really determined that they don't want that to happen. But if they're in the area, it's going to happen. If they were able to, to put sign them up to be taken away at a residential, they'd do it. So I, I think the probably a wee bit of of thought around that, but I mean that's youth services will probably take the lead on something like that, and it'd be, I just think it'd be worth engaging in a conversation with them on on that kind of stuff. Um, so I suppose that's just by by way of of comment to be fair. Just the IRC report recommendation three review of governance to ensure political ownership. I mean, the recommendations suggest an enhanced role for the political advisory group. At present, you know, it only receives the feedback and discusses issues on a quarterly basis. So it's only a vehicle for receiving briefings as distinct from having an ability to feed into the decision-making process of the programme board. So, you know, an enhanced role would deliver, I think, greater buy-in and ownership of the project and that's right across the board from from all of our elected reps so i'm just wondering in terms of yourselves what your views are on this recommendation and whether the minister intends to review or enhance the role of the political advisory group in relation to decision making and increasing political buy-in and um, i'm asking that question based on on my comments at the beginning because to have to be able to give real good leadership and effective leadership, you need to be bought in. And to be bought in, you need to have a, re a real effective role. So um, I suppose that's that's where my thinking is at, and I'm just wanting to find out where the thinking of yourselves as officials and the minister is at, if you're aware of that. Thank you very much. And maybe to start off by responding to your comments about um, youth services and, and the importance of leadership. And I, I think we would share that, and I'm, I'm sure um, our, our colleagues that we support through funding um, in youth services would be very pleased to hear that. Um, we have previously provided funding. We have a, a small agile fund, that we, or we call it an agile fund, which, which allows us to kind of surge resource where it's needed in, in response to particular situations. And that's previously um, worked very well in, in Dairyland and Derry, and, and also um, has been used this year. Actually, in fact, just around about the Easter period. I think the, the challenge, as you as you rightly point out, was that in this case, some of the options available in terms of residential diversion or other diversion activities just weren't possible because of, of COVID restrictions. So um, we, we keep that under close review, and I, I'm sure um, colleagues in, in youth services will, will welcome when the time comes. Um, the easing of those restrictions to, to be able to do more of that activity, but we'll certainly feed back those points. On the on the political advisory group, I think we, we're still very early days in terms of um, it's it's sort of um, it, it's meeting again. It's only met a couple of times. We're, we're still getting into the rhythm of it. That there's certainly a very useful set of discussions on the agenda for future months, um, and we're hoping to, to broaden out the briefing to, to other elected representatives. In terms of, of whether that needs to change again and, and the recommendation of, of the IRC, I think we're, we're very open to, to discussions on that. Um, I, I couldn't give you the Minister's position offhand. I'm very happy to, to follow up on that. Um, we, as officials in the programme, and certainly I'm still relatively new to the programme, but others have been here longer, um, really welcome the, the political engagement on this and the political direction setting on it. Fundamentally, this, that many of these issues are, are ones which require political leadership, and that's acknowledged 
in phase two of, of, of the programme. So we're, we're very open to considering different mechanisms for, for greater political uh, direction setting, input and, and, and anything else. And if there are specific suggestions, we'd be very happy to consider them. Thank you very much. I appreciate your response on that, um, Chair. That, that's all my questions, other than just maybe to suggest that we write to the Minister and ask the question that, that I just asked in terms of, of her own position in relation to that, because I'm well aware of your own um, very deep concern for, in, within, for your own community and, and wanting to show leadership in your own community. And I certainly feel the same. And I know that elected reps right across the assembly feel the same way. So I, I think if we could write to the minister and ask, because it would be good that we do take ownership, you know, certainly not suggesting we take over, but take some, have some buy and have some ownership of, of what we're doing and make sure that we're having some way of feeding in. Okay. So Thank you, Linda. Thank you. Uh, Rachel. Thank you, Chair, um, and thank you very much for your opening remarks there and for answering the questions so far. A number of mine have already been asked, but Adele, I just want to bring you back just in terms of your opening statement on the funding aspect, um, just so I can get my head around it. I know it's in the papers, but the 13 million is being, and that's ring fence for financial year 21-22, and that's the projects from phase two. Uh, the 10 million is um, to be used over the next three financial years, and that's a new decade, new approach. But there's no final, there's no funding um, as yet allocated for financial years 22, 23, and 23, 24. So you have to bid again. But the 10 million wholly for those three years will be look, will be um, only towards communities in transition. That's absolutely a perfect summary of where we're at. Yes. Thank you. That's all right. Thank you. Um, so just on the breakdown then of the phase two funding and projects, um, there's a project there allocated for 50 grand and um, developing interventions to support community reintegration among paramilitary related offenders. So I'm just wondering, could you provide any more detail on this project and what would it involve? Like what's the 50 grand going to? Sorry, oh, sorry, I'm just bringing Chris Freeman's video. Right. Um, so that, that is one of the projects that's carried over from um, phase one and one of the ones that was on it, unable to be progressed uh, under phase one. So um, I can't remember it. It was the recommendation B10 of the independent panel report, which was about increasing the, um, the interventions that are available for prisoners that are coming out of prison with paramilitary um, connections or related convictions. Um, to integrate better into the community. So um, currently um, there, there's a piece of work that's ongoing at the minute to identify what th that might be. Um, and, but COVID has kind of impacted upon the ability to do some of, some of that work because of um, the release of prisons and, and so forth. So um, that is to not allow the prison service to continue that work over the next course of the year and get through to, to some kind of um, either intervention design or, um, uh, or, or delivering some interventions. So uh, at the minute, that's probably one of the ones that has um, kind of least plans behind it because of, of where it is um, and the kind of uncertainty around what might be doable when and if COVID um, regulations are relaxed. Um, but th that is the, the, the purpose of, of the money is to provide an ability to do that uh, and continue through with that recommendation. 
Okay, thank you. And just to just clarify, it's first it would be for staffing costs rather than to for project. Not necessarily, um, but um, it, it very well might be for for projects. It, but at, at this stage, um, there's a if it's it's an indicative amount we're waiting for further plans coming forward from the prison service. Okay, no worries. Thank you very much. Um, I suppose then uh, one uh, one that I always um, talk about, and that's A nine, and uh, A nine um, is on restorative justice and restorative practice, and um, it should include resourcing proposals for core as the centre of restorative excellence. And I know that the lead responsibility was to be Department of Justice, justice um, in conjunction then with the Executive Office. Um, so I know that the IRC certainly had mentioned this in their most recent report and they had um, recognised the steps taken on restorative practice um, but disappointed the length of time that it has taken to establish a dedicated fund for the accredited organisations and a centre of excellence and this work needed to be progressed at a faster pace. So just wondering if there's any update on this work and why um, it wasn't being progressed and if there is scope to progress this within this next financial year um, or indeed uh, for 22-23 and 23-24. And also on the same vein, do you see the fact that some um, restorative practice and restorative justice um, legislation has actually been removed from the Justice Miscellaneous Provisions Bill that we were due to get, which is now the um, Sex Offences and Trafficking Bill um, that we'll touch upon later on. Do you see that as a barrier to progressing the rest of A9? Can I, can I offer a bit of context first on in terms of, of what we're, we're focusing on this year? So when we received um, funding bids for phase two of the programme, they totaled £23 million pounds for, for this year. Um, and we only had um, £13 million available for, for, for projects, not including CIT. So there were some very difficult decisions to be made around about which projects to fund. And so we went through a very detailed process of um, assessing each of the bids against the funding that we had um, within the context of the one-year settlement, because delivery fundamentally is going to have to take place within that year. Um, and won't be able to be rolled over. We were also looking at delivery within the context of, of COVID and, and whether that would be possible to do. So the decision was taken by the programme board not to fund work which would progress this year um, a centre of restorative excellence. However, um, the programme board's decision um, was very clear that this continued to be a really important area of work and that their decision should be reviewed in the context of the funding settlement that we'll get in the coming year. So the bottom line is still very important work, still needs to be progressed. It's still an outstanding commitment under the original executive action plan. Um, there is still an awful lot of funding from the programme going into restorative organisations through other projects. But for this specific issue, given the context and given the deliverability within this year, it was decided not to fund it. But we will revisit that when we, when we come to looking at bids for, for the forthcoming years. Um, on the broader point, unless my colleagues can offer any views. I think we'll, uh, about the justice bill. C could we come back to you? We're not um, over the detail in terms of, of the bill. We would need to ask our DOG colleagues about that. But if, if we could come back to you in, in writing and follow up on that, um, and, unless somebody wants to jump in. I, I'm afraid I'm not across the detail of that. So um, we'd be happy to write to you if, if that would be OK. 
Yeah, no problem at all. Thank you. Um, certainly be beneficial just for the committee, I suppose, as well. And we're looking at um, the sort of the repercussions then of the, the bill being slimmed down, as it were. Um, the I suppose uh, without going into uh, loads of questions, Adele, as you know, um, I always have loads. Um, in terms of the um, phase two approach, um, it's framed around benefits and outcomes. So uh, I suppose just asking how the programme team are measuring the influence uh, or control of paramilitary organisations um, and how are you going to make an assessment of this in phase two? Um, and I suppose in addition, um, is there any work been done around how these organisations are categorised? And for the perspective from the departments involved in the programme, what is used to define a paramilitary organisation? Um, and does that categorisation have any effect in terms of this work going forward in phase two? So in, in relation to the first bit about how we're measuring, so like we have um, a, a number of different types of measures to try and work through um, exactly those issues, because it's not uh, a simple kind of X and Y. Um, so it, on, on one level, it's, it's what we're trying to, we do have population level attitudinal stuff through the Life and Times, which is, um, you know, as all Life and Times data is, it's, it's available, it's online, um, and we've been funding that for now for four years. Um, so as Adele said at the start, we didn't have any kind of baseline level data around what people thought about paramilitaries, whether they thought about whether they had a control within their communities, whether they felt safe, and that, those kinds of issues. We now have four years worth of data, and we're going to do an exercise um, over the next few months to, to delve into that and take those data sets and do a kind of you know, longitudinal cross-sectoral cross analysis around you know, what are the sub-trends within that. At a, at a high level, um, it looks flat over the last four years, um, kind of slight fluctuations year on year, as you would expect. Um, but we suspect that there's kind of um, sub-trends in that, and you can only really do that analysis once you get kind of a number of years worth of data on it. That's at an attitudinal level. Um, there are a number of other types of, of, of data that we, that we also look at around kind of the harm that paramilitary groups cause. Um, so there is data from the housing executive around housing intimidations. There's data from the police around paramilitary-style attacks. Um, and those are the kinds of things that we're we're also building in. There's there's also kind of um, other kind of security related data, um, and then there's other data around confidence in policing and, and uh, confidence in the justice system. So, in general, it's a kind of composite picture of all of those kinds of, of issues to try and get a set, um, a, a, both a kind of a granular level of where and how it's happening, but also at a at a population level. And I think that. For the program as a whole, we need to kind of keep an eye on, on, on all of those levels to make sure that we're understanding exactly what's going on. Um, sorry, Rachel, you asked a question as well about categorisation. I, I, I'm not sure that I followed it. Could you could you help me out a wee bit? Yeah, no worries. Sorry, I think remember um, get my this is the in papers. I think we got last year, and it was about the use of language and the terms of categorization, categorization of um, paramilitary organisations, and also um, the differences between organised crime um, or groups that are identified and categorised simply as criminal. Um, so, is is that been looked at? Um, and just to remember this from last year in papers, um, and and just in in terms of of this. Um, this year going forward, is there any work being done about how organisations um, that may 
may be described as paramilitary organizations um, and differences in categorization and labeling? So, so I think that there's a very deliberate categorization that takes place um, on the part of law enforcement who, who will um, you know, apply different capabilities or different focus to, to different organizations. Um, that's an operational matter for, for them to deal with. I think for us, it's, it's slightly different. We're less, in a sense, um, interested in whether somebody strictly falls into you know, a paramilitary organization or organized crime, because there is such a crossover between the two. And we're more interested in, in the people that are affected by it in terms of, of the harm that's either caused to an individual or a community. So that's very much where our focus is. And whether it is you know, defined as a paramilitary organization or defined as, a, as an organized criminal gang or, or something in between, um, the, the focus needs to be and, and we need to be explaining that the harm that that causes to individuals, to communities, you know, to wider society and challenging some of that. We, we have done some work through the political advisory group and um, with with PSNI and others to um, talk, start to talk about issues of, of language because we know how important this is in, in terms of challenging normalisation around about some paramilitary activity. Um, we we have had some fairly extended discussions around about the the terminology of paramilitary style assaults, for instance. So um, paramilitary style assaults, when it when it has become more embedded, is, is definitely an improvement on punishment style attacks, which conveys some sort of sense that, that the victim deserved it. But we do have a sense, I think, a growing sense, and that there's a sort of common view that actually the, the terminology paramilitary style assaults doesn't really get to the to the issue in terms of, of the harm that it causes. It tends in many cases to, to gloss over the extreme violence that, that is, is involved. Um, it doesn't really allow an awful lot of scope for, for discussion around about it. So we are looking at whether there is alternative language that um, could be used more commonly that, that, that conveys some of the harm around about this. But that's very much where our, our, our focus is rather than um, focusing on you know, strict categorization of whether somebody falls into paramilitary or organized crime. Okay, I'll leave it there, Sarah. Thanks very much. Okay, thank you, Rachel. Uh, Sinead. Thank you, Chair, and thank you for your opening remarks. And to be fair, most of my questions have been um, asked and answered quite fully. Uh, but I still, I suppose, I'm leaving with um, some questions around the... I, I, Apologies, I appreciate this is really complex and I know it's not a, a simple matter to try and record and achieve targets or, or understand if targets have been achieved and I appreciate how complex that actually is. But I would, I would hope to have a better understanding of how um, your success is measured and I take your point about it being societal attitudes um, but I think Rachel hit on a really good point. Um, if the objective is to tackle paramilitary activity and criminal and organised crime, then the starting place has to, has to surely be to recognise when and what that is. And, and I appreciate that it is, uh, the focus is in certain geographical areas, but I'm also concerned, is there an eye um, to, you know, if, if somebody who's involved in paramilitary activity recognises that the environment in which they're working in is actually changing and you are having success, is there a danger that they pop up in other places? Um, and just how wide is that measure, the whole measuring piece on are we on top of this? And 
simple things like the measurement, how successful, how do you measure how successful the uh, campaign, for example, that was run uh, by the department, you know, the television campaign, how do we measure whether those types of things are successful? And I'm just thinking because there's quite a significant resource goes to this, but we need to know that it's genuinely going to the right places to have the right effect. So any further information you could share with me on that, I'd appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'll maybe start with the, the campaign which you mentioned. So the, the current campaign which is running is the, the third in a series um, under the, the broad banner of, of ending the harm. And um, considerable time and effort has gone into to testing the concepts and making sure that, um, one, this is the, the right sort of issue to be focusing on for, for a public awareness campaign, um, that it's appropriately constructed, that it's based on, on evidence, um, um, information from, from delivery partners, but also, as you say, that it has an impact. We can point um, in previous campaigns to quite significant shifts in attitudinal change from post-campaign um, post evaluation, which the, the last campaign focused on, on um, paramilitary violence. We, we saw quite significant changes in terms of acceptance, decreases in acceptance of um, the, the, the viability um, of, of paramilitary style attacks. So that's one example where we can see that the investment is, is paying off. On a more sort of, and we will do that for this campaign as well. So we will have extensive um, evaluation of all the different um, methods by which the, the campaign has gone out. So whether that's social media, broadcast, print, other other ways, and we'll do both qualitative and quantitative um, testing. So I think we we can be assured that there is, um, you know, there's a robust system in place for doing that. We're also we were talking to colleagues yesterday, actually, um, in um, one council area who, as a result of the campaign, are starting to have further discussions with their, their PCSPs um, to talk about how they can provide further advice and service provision for people who are facing situations of indebtedness. So that's a, it's a less quantitative way of, um, of describing the impact, but it's actually really important because it's leading to practical change, it's leading to discussion. And we fully accept that not everybody will um, necessarily agree with, with what the public awareness campaign is saying, that there may be discussion around about that, but even that discussion in itself is really important in terms of consistently having a message that, that we are challenging what, what is normal or, or what is acceptable. So um, we'd be happy to share some of the data that we had from the previous campaigns, if that would be helpful. And, and equally, once we get the data analysis through for this campaign, um, we, we're happy to share that with, with you and the committee as well. We're, we have one burst of the campaign which is, is due to end shortly and then we'll have another burst as we approach um, the sort of autumn period and coming up to, to Christmas when we know that financial difficulties are, are particularly acute. So um, we, we can share the interim findings on that and also the longer term stuff if that would be helpful. Um, on the wider point around about impact, do you want to pick up on that? Um, yeah, so... Um... I kind of appreciate that we've kind of discussed it in slightly conceptual terms, and, and I wonder whether it might be easier if we kind of write to you and show you a little bit more of some of the, the data and some of the, um, the the kind of the survey stuff that we're looking at, so you can get a sense as to what the questions are that we're looking at and how those fit within a wider narrative. And I don't quite have all the hand just in front of me, and I think it would probably be easier for you for you to see. So if if that kind of helped a little bit to show some of the 
the the the, the data that the programs are getting by com level, and I think we're happy to do that. That would be helpful. Thank you. Yes, I think that would be very helpful um, because it is difficult. You know, we can see the headlines and the targets, but it's to, to really understand the measure, the measures at the end, because obviously that will dictate. I know there's parts in um, phase one that weren't delivered on and they're carrying through, but I suppose as the whole project matures, it is about understanding um, that measurement at the end and, you know, whether that's accurate and fair and if anything's being missed on that I think would be important so yes I think that would be very helpful I appreciate that thank you thank you chair thank you Sinead uh, I was just checking here I don't think Doug has come back yet if he does before we just conclude I think he had a question but can I just ask there have been a in terms of the, the tackle and paramilitarism review back in October last year there been a recommendation or certainly been consideration been given to a civil recovery agency for Northern Ireland. And obviously we're making some progress, whether it's in terms of the enactment of the proceeds of crime, um, because one of, one of the places best to hit some of these uh, individuals who are at the, the head of these organisations and who wreak havoc in our communities is via dismantling their financial empires and is there any further discussion has been made or can you give us any indication as to whether or not that issue of a civil recovery agency uh, has been progressed by the department and, and do you think that that would be uh, helpful because obviously uh, when you look at the NCA and as a former member along with the deputy chair of this committee of the policing board we have seen how that uh, those organisations, the PSNI, the NCNA, are, are always uh, would be advocates to ensure that they had as much of the uh, levers legislatively that they could go after uh, these people who uh, in, inflict such devastation on our communities. So I, th I think we're very conscious that, that part of our role is to provide whatever tools um, you know, colleagues in, in different departments and agencies think are necessary to, to deal with in this um, problem in all its manifestations. As far as I'm aware, the discussions around about a, a specific agency, as you have described, are, are ongoing um, within the Department of Justice. And just, just to point out, we're, we're not Department of Justice representatives, we're, we're very much cross-executive. So yes. we, we can certainly seek an update on, on where that is exactly. Um, but as I say, anything that we can do to um, facilitate uh, conversations around about what powers are needed, we, we will do. And I would say that as, as um, the Paramilitary Crime Task Force um, make progress, those, those powers might need to change, given the fact that um, inevitably the, the way in which paramilitaries operate will, will change to, to avoid those. So we need to be on our toes on this, and I think we need to be thinking ahead, and, and we're certainly talking to DOJ colleagues um, about wider reviews of, of powers in relation to serious criminal and organised um, criminal um, offences. So uh, we can seek an update from DOJ leads on this, if that, if that would be helpful. Okay. Um, I, I'm not, not sure there's much more we, we no, can say okay. on that. Okay. Okay, thank you. Uh, I don't have any other members who have indicated questions, so can I thank you all for your time uh, this afternoon and sadly as a result of the nature 
of the work that, that you're doing. We will be returning to this uh, on, I'm sure, uh, a number of occasions. But in the meantime, thank you for your help. Thank you for the information you provided to us today. And uh, we will follow up on some of the issues that have been raised. Thank you very much. Okay. Okay, members, uh, that uh, really, I suppose, there was a couple of things coming out, out of that. Uh, and that was Linda suggested we're right to the Minister. And if we're agreed, we'll do that. Maybe we should also, uh, I'm not sure whether Adele was saying she would provide for us an update in regards to the civil recovery. Uh, maybe we should just follow it up with the correspondence as well. Yeah, I think she'd offered to follow up with the department, but we can include that in the Right, OK. OK, any other comments? OK, that brings us then, uh, members, to item four. The, the, sorry, brings us to item five. If I just take the right page, is the Protection for Stocking Bill update. And that is at pages 158 to 178 of the meeting pack uh, today. And following the oral evidence session with the organisations and the protection for the Stoking Bill, the committee requested further information from the Department of Justice on a number of issues. The Department has provided responses uh, on the issues raised regarding the Domestic Abuse Disclosure Scheme and the programmes available for perpetrators of stalking and how it provides information on legislation for people with disabilities, in particular blind people. The Department also confirmed that Clause 1.4 in its view already covers making use of a person's disability and making use uh, of the intermediaries such as children, family members or others, and it is exploring the option of extending special measures to civil and family proceedings and will update the committee on this in due course. So it's really to note the additional information provided by the department unless there's any further information or clarification that is required. Okay, thank you. Uh, and again, just to advise members that the responses will be added to the electronic bill folder on the committee's web pages. Can we have agreement for the members to forward the response from the Department on the Domestic Abuse Disclosure Scheme to the Women's Policy Group in Northern Ireland for information? Great. Great. Thank you. Item six, the protection from stalking bill research paper on uh, trawling and abuse. And that's at pages 180 to 206 of the meeting pack. And uh, this is really to assist consideration of the issues arising in relation to the stalking bill and the prevalence of online abuse more generally. And the committee commissioned uh, a research paper on the laws to tackle online trolling and the abuse available in other jurisdictions, examples of international good practice, and what powers are reserved or devolved, including the areas the Assembly can potentially uh, either influence or recommend uh, action on. And given uh, what has been in the public domain today in relation to a successful uh, case against uh, a well-known uh, journalist on that issue, I think it's, uh, it's certainly a timely paper. And it's just to note the research paper, uh, and it will inform the committee's deliberation of the bill and the wider issues, unless members, and there's a couple, have indicated. So, Linda and then Sinead. Thank you, Chair. Sorry. Um, I suppose just to, to say that it's a very good 
piece of research. It was a very good paper. So thank the research people for doing that for us. And probably some of it doesn't come as any surprise. And, and you've just referred to, to a case, but um, in terms of the, the fact that it's mostly women who are victims of this and minority groups within that as well. So women who are, are ethnic minority and then obviously other minority groups as well. And, and I don't think that's any comes really as any surprise to any of us because people who perpetrate this behaviour look for people who they perceive to have some type of vulnerability. That that's all part of the, part of their their you know behaviour and, and how they identify people and the, and those who they'll decide to attack. So it is just to really comment on the fact that I think this is a really good piece of research and we should use it going forward. But the other thing that I did note was the piece saying that what is illegal offline is illegal online. So I'm hoping that that, and I would like to delve more into this at, at some point with officials and with potentially with legal advice, but I'm hoping that that means that we don't need specific legislation because as we know, it's an accepted matter around telecommunications, but we don't need maybe potentially to make specific legislation around online because if you're doing something online, that can be perceived as stalking, then it's illegal and it falls within the remit of this bill. And I suppose I really want a definitive answer around that. And if we can get it from the department in writing, I'm happy with that. But at some point, I certainly want to get an opportunity to, to get that um, definitive around that issue. Thank you, Chair. Okay. And we, I think we should write to the department and seek clarification in relation to that. Agreed? Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, Sinead. Thank you, Chair. Um, and yes, I just want to thank um, Georgina for this paper. It certainly is very informative and there's no doubt it's going to help us in terms of the building up of the, the stocking bill. But, but it does um, beg the question, I suppose, whilst we're using it in that vein, I really wonder what other legislation is sitting within the gift of the Department for Justice um, that should be reviewed in a way that would allow for any required amendments. And and I, uh, you noted the case today of a well-known journalist, and I'm quite sure Stephen Nolan won't be shy about having his name mentioned um, at this committee, because it is worth noting that his case um, was referring to what was believed or somebody who believed they were in an anonymous capacity, and they clearly weren't. Um, and good on Stephen Nolan and his team for, for um, getting to the bottom of that. But also the case, it has to be said, of our former First Minister, where it wasn't an anonymous um, account. And th there are lessons to be learned from those cases in terms of what can we do to make sure that the legislation we're passing is robust. And are there other pieces of legislation that this committee may want to consider that need to be pinned down in a way that, that does speak to this new world that we all live in. Unfortunately, where online trolling and abuse is more commonplace. And it doesn't surprise me, uh, the content in there, where there is reference to, to women um, being more subjected to this. You know, we, we do know that to be the case. And any legislation, I suppose, we look at um, should, should acknowledge that. Yeah. And um, but I think it is a really good starting place in terms of having a 
an up-to-date paper in front of us that we should be using to, to build on the legislation that, that is in front of us. Thank you, Chair. And, and I think that probably following on from what response we get from the department, then we could revisit this and see if, if we can identify where there are, if there are gaps and what might need to be done in terms of trying to amend that. If that, if that I think, would be a, a way for us as a, as a justice committee to deal with that. Agreed. OK, I don't think there's anybody else in relation to that. Uh, is indicated. So thank you. That brings us to agenda item seven, which is the Justice Sexual Offences and Trafficking Victims Bill. And just as a, and the information on this is at pages 208 to 226. And we've had a problem because I asked earlier as to why we hadn't got receipt of the bill. And just so that members are clear, there has been a problem with the firewall uh, when the bill was sent to the Assembly because of the repeated use of terminology and it has created a difficulty for us. So we have to speak to uh, the uh, people here who deal with that so that you will be able to get a copy of the bill. Uh, there is, I think, Chris, have, has it been sent yet? Yes, it has been sent out to members now. Right. We got it released um, and they've got it through to members' accounts, hopefully. Yeah. So, so, in a sense, apologies that we weren't able to, to do that before to give you time, but you now hopefully will have it and, and we'll see uh, how we will progress with this. So the Department has written to the committee providing information on the content and the redrafted Justice Bill, now entitled the Justice Sexual Offences and Traffic Victims Bill, which was approved by the Executive on the 24th of June for introduction to the Assembly. The redrafted bill is more narrowly scoped and now includes a, includes a number of provisions arising from the Gillen Review and from the outcome of a review of the law on child sex, sexual exploitation and sexual offences against children. A new offence of upskirting and downblousing, uh, adjustments to sexual prevention order arrangements and violent offences prevention order arrangements and adjustments to the modern slavery provision in the Northern Ireland Human Trafficking Act. The Minister also intends to continue to develop a number of planned amendments which cover a legislative fix uh, to reinstate four offences incorrectly removed in Schedule 2 of the Magistrates' Courts Order 1981, the abolition of the rough sex defence, an extension to existing revenge uh, porn provisions to include a threat to publication and provisions to widen the scope and strengthen the current law on abuse of trust. The NSPCC has also provided the additional information requested by the committee on the position and the recent developments in England and Wales and other relevant jurisdictions in relation to close the loop uh, campaign and to extend the abuse of trust legislation. That information uh, on the provisions that appear to have been taken out of the bill is set out in paragraph 7 of the clerk's memo uh, at page 209 of today's pack. This list is based on a review of the information previously provided by the Department on the Bill. As agreed at last week's meeting, the Department has been asked to confirm the position regarding what is not now covered by the Bill as soon as possible. And the Minister intends to introduce the Justice, Sexual Offences and Trafficking Victims Bill to the Assembly. Uh, now we know for the 6th of July, I think that has now been confirmed, 
and given the limited time until the end of the mandate, the committee will be asked to consider proposals to call for evidence on the bill following its introduction, but before second stage has taken place at the next meeting. And can I just say that while you'll read in the, the pack uh, what is being demanded, maybe that's putting it too strongly, uh, of the department as to what and how we should conduct our business, it will be this committee that will decide as to how we should progress. We will be helpful and we will be accommodating. But I think I have to say, as chair, and I think it reflect some uh, frustration that there maybe has been previously with this committee, that it is ultimately the decision of the committees to decide as to how they uh, progress and how they work. Uh, and we are in a difficult and challenging time frame, and we'll take all of that into account. So. Uh, members have the information now uh, uh, in front of them, and well, they will, they will have it. We will give consideration to it, and any comments now that uh, members want to make, Linda. Thank you, Chair. Um, I mean, what I suppose want to say now is, given the importance of the issues in this bill. Is that we do whatever we have to to progress it. It's it's just really vital that we do get these issues through. I I still have concerns and have raised it enough times. I'm sure people are sick listening to it um, about the things that are not in it. And I won't go back over it. Rachel raised concern around the accreditation of of the of the restorative justice program. So I think that is a a problem as well. But there are many many issues that are within this bill that we absolutely need to to get moving on. So I welcome the fact that we're at this point and um, we'll have to look at the issues that have been left out of it and see how we can we can address those going forward. And some of them, I think we're just going to have to accept, won't be addressed in this mandate, which is disappointing, but we are where we are. So just to, to put that on record, but we really need to push ahead now with delivering on this because the, the issues that are held within it are just way too important. And there are issues that I certainly um, would have raised concerns about, and I don't think can come through quickly enough. Even you know, particularly probably for me is is the, that issue around protecting those who um, make it to court, which we know the figures around in terms of serious sexual assault, um, and protecting their anonymity and making sure that those who break their anonymity pay the price for that because we, we've seen in previous cases, particularly high-profile cases, the treatment of those victims. And, and I think that if we really want to seriously tackle this issue and encourage people to make it to the court system in the first place, whatever happens then happens. I mean, you have to go through the judicial process, that's it. But to even make it that far, so many people are put off by the fact that what happens if my anonymity is broken? You know, and, and, and a number of other issues that are within this bill. So it's important for us to get going. Thank you, Chair. Okay. Any other comments? I, I think, and I, I suppose the, the only comment I'll make uh, two things. One is recrimination as to how we got here is not going to, I think, be of any great help. Uh, and I, I think, you know, there are some comments in the correspondence where clearly the, the frustration of the Minister. Uh, was being expressed, and uh, I can understand uh, how the minister may feel uh, disappointed in, in relation. But 
I think as Linda says, we are now where we are. We need to focus on ensuring that what is before us uh, is of importance, and it, it, we can't underestimate the importance in relation to uh, those that this piece of legislation will have benefit for. And I think that needs to be our focus. I have no doubt that when it comes to Tuesday, the Minister will uh, make uh, other comments. And But I think getting into the blame game won't be of any great benefit. We need to focus on what's in the, the piece of legislation. Uh, there is one issue, another issue, which is maybe we should ask the Minister to provide details of the policy to be covered by each of the four amendments that she plans to bring forward and the wording of the amendments, if available, so that the committee will be able to include this information. It's called for evidence to assist in the scrutiny of the legislation. So, if we're agreed, we would ask that of uh, the, the Minister. Agreed. Agreed. Okay. No other comments in relation to that? I don't want to... Okay, thank you. Brings us then to agenda item eight, which is the SR 2021-155, the Proceeds of Crime Act 2002, the application of, of PACE Northern Ireland Order 1989 Amendments Order Northern Ireland 2021. And that's at pages 228 to 239 uh, of the meeting pack and at pages 6 to 12 of the table pack uh, for today. The statute rule amends the proceeds of crime, uh, as we have uh, outlined. These investigations were introduced by the Criminal Finances Act 2017 to support new powers of uh, forfeiture of the limited assets and forfeiture of the money held in an account maintained in the bank or uh, building society. And at this meeting on the 3rd of June 2021, the committee agreed that it was content with the proposal for the statutory rule, which is subject to negative resolution. The Department has confirmed that there has been no change to the policy content of the rule since it was considered by the committee, and the examiner of statutory rules has confirmed that she has no issues to raise in relation to the technical aspects of the rule. The examiner's report, published on the 29th of June, is at pages 6 to 12 of the table pack for today. Are members content with the statutory rule? And if you are content, then I'd put the question, which is that the Committee for Justice considered SR 2021-155, uh, the Proceeds of Crime Act 2002, application of PACE Northern Ireland Order 1989, Amendment Order Northern Ireland 2021, and has no objection to the rule. Agreed? Agreed. Thank you. Item 9 is... Uh, and SL1, the making available on the market and supervision of transfer of explosives amendment, EU exit regulations, Northern Ireland 2021. That's at pages 241 to 259 of today's papers. Department of Justice is proposing to make the statutory rule which will be subject to the draft affirmative resolution procedure to amend the making available on the market and supervision of transfer of explosives 2016 regulations. 2016 regulations implement EU Directive uh, 2014-28-EU, the overall purpose of which is to ensure that civil explosives can only be placed on the EU market if they are safe. The 2016 regulations need to be amended to maintain Northern Ireland's alignment with the Directive and ensure that the UK and Northern Ireland meets its obligations under the Protocol on Ireland-Northern Ireland to a withdrawal agreement. The rule will also introduce provisions 
uh, with regards to the UK Northern Ireland uh, indication. Uh, Peter? Yeah, look, thank you, uh, Chair. Look, it might just have been me. I, I was reading over this um, when I was going through the papers. I, I find it a little bit confusing, both in terms of precisely what the import of the of the SL would be. Uh, I appreciate this is particularly this is through affirmative resolution, so that maybe suggests that we're not quite on the same level of urgency. But I think even in terms of the explanatory side of things, um, it seemed to me a little bit of. Uh, at least certainly the way it was worded, a level, little bit of contradiction in this, because at one stage it said, effectively, there's nothing applicable in Great Britain, but also then at a different stage it also talked about mirroring the provisions of Great Britain in, in relation to this. Um, I'm just a little bit nervous about this, um, I suppose particularly for dealing with, with the issue of, of um, passage of explosives. It, it, you know, it, it could have a very significant issue. I wonder, instead of taking a decision on this today, could we maybe get either some briefing off of, of officials in, in relation to this before we come to a conclusion on that. Um, okay. uh, I think the other issue I, I noticed, there seems to be that point, if they could clarify for us what is the position, is it, is it uh, a similar read across and uh, where are we at in regards to what happens in GB and what happens yeah, in Northern Ireland? That didn't seem to be... It, it did seem from certainly, again, maybe just reading it, there seem to be at least two different references, and they actually seem to take this in different directions in that regard. Okay. I find that a bit confusing. We content we seek uh, paper from the department in relation to this. Agreed. Thank Agreed. you. Agenda item 10 is the LM1 Amendment Rule 22A, 22A of the Parole Commissioner's Amendment Rules Northern Ireland 2021. Uh, the information in relation to this is on pages 261 to 268. The Department of Justice is proposing to make a statutory rule which will be subject to the negative resolution procedure to provide clarification on the number of commissioners to be engaged in producing summaries of decisions when requested by the victims or other persons to ensure value for money and an efficient process in relation to the enumeration of the parole commissioners. The rule will remove references to the single commissioners and relevant panel and replace them with the term commissioner to make it clear that the proceeds the process to provide a summary of reasons can be undertaken by a similar commission, commissioner, thus ensuring value for money in relation to transactional costs. I think this is another example, if it had been done right at the time, we might not be in the place where there was a requirement for SL1, however, I think that, that ship has left the harbour. Uh, any comments in relation to that? Okay, so just... Uh, if we're content, then uh, we'll note that. Uh, okay, Christine? Yes? I have to just make sure I'm doing this right. I'm still, uh, I still the L plates up, so you'll bear with me. Mm -hmm. uh, the agenda item 11 is the Department of Justice uh, monitoring round 2021-22 and the provisional outturn update, and that's at pages 270 to 311. And the department has provided the further information requested by the committee following the oral evidence session at its meeting on the 3rd of June in relation to the uh, provisional uh, outturn and the June monitoring ground. The response details the reasons bad debt is occurred, uh, accrued and required to be written off by the Legal Services Agency, a breakdown of the ring-fenced resource Dell bid and the declared resources Dell easements, pressures arising from the McLeod uh, judgment and the reasons for 
the uh, capital and non-ring fenced resource uh, expenditure in the final month uh, of the year. There was a surge in that in 2020-2021. The Department has also provided an update on the outcome of the June monitoring round that outlines that a resource Dell bid of almost £40 million was made and funding of £11.5 million has been provided by the Executive. The Department currently has 958,000 available to allocate towards pressures and the remaining resource Dell pressures of almost 29 million will be kept under review and been submitted in the October monitoring round as necessary. I have to say, members, it's not a very awe-inspiring uh, picture if we have a bid of 40 million and we end up in a situation where there was only 11.5 and there are pressures of 29. And I think it might be worthwhile for us to try and find from the department where those pressures are and what, because that'll give us some indication of maybe some of the challenges uh, that may arise uh, in terms of the rest of the, the financial year. So if uh, no other member has any other comment to make, we're happy that we seek that clarification from the department. Because it's better known better known early as, as being in a position later on and then at least we have some ideas to where some of these problems will be arise. Thank you. Item, 11, item 12, Court Approval of Minor Settlements Proposed Consultation and that's the written briefing and that's at pages 313 to 348. Uh, the Gillen Review of Civil Justice in 2017 made a recommendation that the Department should bring forward legislation to compel a requirement for court approval for all legal cases involving a settlement or award of damages to minors. Following research into the issue, the Department is now proposing to undertake a public consultation on whether and if how it ought to legislate to require court approval of compensation settlements to children for personal injury minor settlements in cases in which legal proceedings have not uh, been issued. The consultation will run from July for 12 weeks and the Department has provided a copy of the draft consultation document. Uh, any comments uh, in relation to this or I suppose the normal process would be that we would then give consideration to this after the consultations has come back and the Department would come then and, and give us a briefing in relation to it. Content? Thank you. Item 13, support services for operational prison staff uh, and retired staff uh, updating the progress to deliver the review recommendations. You'll find that on pages 350 to 504. The Department has provided an update on the progress to deliver the recommendations arising from the reviews of support services for operational prison staff and retired staff. In relation to services for serving staff, seven actions have been achieved. Six actions will be uh, fully achieved by September. Twelve remain on target for achievement in the autumn, and there are two actions where limited progress has been made. The limited progress relates to the review of the current service provided to the Northern Ireland Prison Service by the Occupational Health Service to assess its impact and the need for service level agreement with OHS. The Prison Service has explained that discussions with the Department of Finance has focused on the establishment of the bespoke in-house HR functions and discussions will now take place on the recommendations relating to OHS. 
In relation to the retired staff, the review recommended that the Police Retaining and Rehabilitation Trust should be explored as providing the best delivery model for the provision of support service and significant progress has been made in this. It is envisaged that a self-referral service will be in place by early 2022. And just to inform members that a further update on progress will be provided to the committee in December, by which stage the authors of the review into support services for operational staff will also have assessed the progress made by the Northern Ireland Prison Service. And just whether or not there are any other comments, I had uh, a meeting with the head of the prison service yesterday, and uh, I think that there is a, an attempt being made uh, genuinely to, and I think when you look at uh, the outline of the uh, ones, the actions that have been achieved, the six actions that have been fully uh, will be fully achieved by September. I think there is an effort being made, but I think we'll have a clearer picture uh, by the end of this year as to where this all sits. So I think that that uh, just now to note the comments in this uh, correspondence. Thank you. Uh, just in relation to uh, one item, and that is, uh, it might be worthwhile that the committee ask for confirmation that the capital funding requirements identified by PRRT have been met by the department following the June monitoring round. So, if you're agreed, we'll seek that clarification. Great. Item 14, the committee forward work programme. That's at pages 506 to 513. And can I just on that, this point, just say a word of appreciation to our staff, because I know it's daunting for us, certainly daunting for me, whenever I saw committee papers and they go to 700 pages, uh, it makes the policing board look uh, uh, pretty easy, I think, Linda. Uh, but uh, I want to say a word of appreciation to staff, because there's a huge amount of work has gone in to the preparing of these papers, so just I'm saying that uh, as, a, as a comment. The department has provided a list of items uh, to keep us busy, uh, and it would like the committee to consider at its meeting in September 2021. It's nice for them to ask what we might want to do. Uh, the committee will also need to continue to focus on progress in the committee stages of the damaging return on investment bill and the protection from stocking bill during September and October. So if you're content with what's set out in the, the work programme, uh, no comments. I think we're going to have a busy, I think we'll enjoy our Christmas dinner uh, because it's going to be a busy few months. So, God just also remind members that Judge Marion will be attending the meeting next week uh, to in relation to the review of the hate crime legislation in Northern Ireland. The report is substantial and covers a wide range of issues. And to take the best use of the time, Judge Marion has asked if there are any particular areas where members would like to specifically cover in his opening remarks. So if members could advise the clerk if there are any particular areas they would like Judge Marion to address in his opening remarks. And I think Linda and I were still on the policing board at the time when he came to the board. And I, I think what you'll find uh, with Judge Marion is he, he certainly wants to engage uh, and uh, if we can help in this way. So I leave. Uh, Linda. Thank you, Chair. Um, just to reiterate, reiterate your remarks about the, the staff and the
there's no doubt that, that they do an immense amount of work in the, in the background. And it also makes me glad that we are not in the, in the Justice Committee, the accountability mechanism for the PSNA, because imagine trying to do police and board stuff on top of this. <laughs> it just wouldn't be possible. Um, so just in relation to Judge Marlon, I, I was obviously still on the police and board along with yourself whenever he came before the, the police and board. And I found him to be very um, upfront and straight. Yep. And um, I, I really think that this opportunity to engage with him we should use because I do think that he wants to genuinely affect change and work with us to do that. So I think that needs to run both ways. We need to, to work with him and I agree with your, your comments around that, Chair. So thank you. And, and I just want to say to committee members so that you understand how I try to operate, I don't want it to be seen as though we're trying to stack all the issues in a sense that it gives whoever comes to this committee uh, an easy run. But I, I like to think that we try to ensure that we can focus and make sure that we make best use of our time. And uh, that's why I think this is important. So if there are issues for members, please make them available. But that does not preclude you having the opportunity to raise between now and that uh, meeting issues on the day when we have Judge Marion in front of us. Okay, items. Yes. Could I just add? Christine. Um, we have provided to Judge Marion the initial response from the department on his report, so he will have seen that before he attends next week um, for any views he has um, on their response as well. Okay, thank you. Item 15 uh, is correspondence. And there are 10 items of correspondence at pages 516 to 665. And just draw your attention to one of the items on the correspondence sheets, uh, the sheet. Members will then have the opportunity to comment on any of the items correspondence that they have a particular interest in. And item 6 at page 528 uh, to 543 is a call for evidence for from the Committee of Finance on the Financial Reporting Department of Public Bodies Bill. The Committee of Finance has indicated that the bill is designed to provide greater transparency and understanding of the budget process by improving alignment between the supply estimates, the departmental resources accounts, and although technical in nature, its impact will be widespread. And as the former finance minister, I can assure you that <laughs> it is a challenge and it is technical. So. I suppose it's to seek the agreement of members to write to the Department of Justice requesting its views and comments on the clauses in the bill relevant to its responsibilities and any likely uh, implications. Agreed? Agreed. And then just to get uh, your consent that you're content with the actions in the remaining items of the correspondence as set out in the cover sheet or whether there, you have any other comments that you wish to raise in relation to correspondence. Okay. Thank you. Uh, the Chair's business, uh, just uh, I think maybe a couple of items. One is a response from uh, Lady Chief Justice, uh, the First Lady Chief Justice in Northern Ireland, Mr Justice Keegan, has responded to the Committee's letter of congratulations on her appointment and we look forward to engaging with her once she has taken up post and a copy of the correspondence is at page 667668 at the Peating Park. And then item two is the informal meeting with the children's organisations. 
committee had agreed to hold an informal meeting with a range of children's organisations at the request to discuss the proposals for a secure justice and care campus. The committee has also agreed to invite members of the health committee to join the meeting if they wish to do so. That meeting will take place on Monday, the 5th of July at 12 noon via the Microsoft Teams and the committee then will issue further, the committee team will issue further information on a link to the meeting uh, to all members. So you note, so those are two things we have, the Monday the 5th and then we have Wednesday, uh, which are two important uh, dates for members of the committee. Item 17, any other business? Q. Item 18 is the date and time and place of the next meeting, and that will be Thursday the 8th of July 2021 at 2pm in the Senate Chamber uh, in Parliament Buildings. And thank you for your help. It is always appreciated uh, for your assistance in the meetings, and we'll adjourn the meeting. Thank you very much. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly 